Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. After David Letterman was blackmailed in 2009, he made a shocking on-air confession. The admission that might have cost him his career today was, at the time, practically forgotten about within the week until one ex-employee revealed her story. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. We are ready for a jam-packed episode two. Well, we left everybody on quite the cliffhanger, so it's only fair that we don't spend too long before we get straight back into it. But let's do what we always do and quickly recap. What we covered in episode one, we gave a lot of context on who David Letterman is. He actually started out as a weather presenter. In 1975, when David was 29 years old, he moved to LA with his then wife, Michelle Cook. And it was there that his big break happened almost immediately. He started out with a morning TV show before executives realized his sense of humor, Mish, was better suited to the late night TV spot. Yeah, within a handful of years, the LA Times was dubbing him the king of late night TV. He was earning millions of dollars a year for The Late Show. And despite his public feud with Oprah Winfrey and despite some of his quite controversial chats with young female celebrities that would age terribly in the years to come, his career was thriving at the time, right? Absolutely. And then at 6am on September 9, 2009, then 62-year-old David Letterman was about to drive into work when he spotted a mysterious package sitting on the back seat of his car. Now, there was a letter accompanying the package. It read, I know that you do some terrible, terrible things, and I can prove that you do those terrible things. Yeah, by this point in his life, David had moved on from his first marriage. He was actually now married to Regina, the mother of his child. Now, almost a week later, on September 15, 2009, David's lawyer met with the blackmailer, and the blackmailer turned out to be CBS News producer Robert Holderman. Robert had never met David before, but they were both employees of the same network. Yes, David's team essentially worked on a plot to trap Robert. After a handful of meetings, which they covertly recorded, they handed Robert a fake check for $2 million. On the same day that Robert tried to cash that check, 
David appeared before a grand jury to tell his story. That jury issued an indictment against Robert for attempted grand larceny in the first degree by extortion, which sounds like, as far as crimes go, quite a fancy one. (laughs) It sounds like a novel. So what exactly was Robert trying to blackmail David Letterman with? What were the terrible things David had done? We are about to tell you that and so much more. To do it, Zara, we are rewinding back to the 1st of October, 2009. Alrighty, Mish. So on October 1, 2009, just before the 4.30pm taping of The Late Show, David Letterman gathered about 15 of the show's writers, senior producers and crew members into a huddle. A private audience with a very private David Letterman was pretty unusual at this time, particularly so close to when they were about to film the show. Mm. It was so rare, in fact, that one employee actually wondered who had died. Yeah, David spoke to his staff in a somber tone, telling them about the blackmail attempt and the threat to reveal his past. Looking back, the staff realised that the only people present were those who actually needed to know that in that day's show, David was about to go off script and deliver a lengthy monologue. Yeah, as David finished telling his story to the staff, he ended with a self-deprecating gesture, telling the group that in light of the information they just learned, they were free to resign. No one did. One staffer said the prevailing feeling was, how can we help? According to the book Letterman by Jason Zinneman, David was in a pretty bad place in the lead up to giving this monologue. He reportedly told one of his writers, I'm in hell. I will always be in hell until the day after when I will go to hell. That is like obviously a semi-confusing quote. Yeah. My interpretation of that is him saying, I'm in hell now. Like this is hell on earth for me. I will be in hell every day on earth until the day after I die when because of my actions, I will go to actual hell. Yeah, so it's like an infinite stretch of hell, I guess. (laughs) Now, David Letterman began The Late Show that day as he always did. He began with his monologue. Sitting at the desk, David asked his audience, I have a little story that I would like to tell you and the home viewers as well. Do you feel like a story? The question was met with applause and cheers from his in-studio audience. David then told his audience in a 10-minute piece to camera exactly what had happened with the blackmail situation, or almost exactly. Yeah, he explained discovering the package, calling his lawyer, setting up meetings with the blackmailer, and he did all this without naming any names at all. Of course, now we know the blackmailer is Robert Haldeman. It is such a weird viewing experience watching this monologue back on YouTube because the audience quite clearly has no fucking idea what is happening. They think he's telling a joke or like maybe even a fake story because there is raucous laughter in the first half and then awkward, nervous, confused laughter as soon as it dawns on the audience that this is actually a very real, very serious, very concerning story. But even still, like if I was in that audience, I would still assume even as the story got a bit more serious that it was a bit that the punchline was just around the corner because that is the vibe of late night TV. It's comedy. David Letterman is a comedian. We want to play you a snippet so you can get a sense and an idea of what the mood was like in that room. I'm like you. I think, really? That's a little, and this is the word I actually used, that's a little hinky. (laughs) Um, So so I I just want to reiterate how terrifying this moment is because there's something very insidious about is he standing down there? Is he hiding under the car? 
am I, am I going to get a tap on the shoulder? Mm. You immediately, because I, I'm motivated by nothing but guilt. If you know anything about me, <laughs> I, I am just a towering mass of Lutheran <laughs> Midwestern guilt. Uh-uh. So, <clears throat> well, thank you. How do you think you would have responded? I think I would have been laughing. I would have been laughing. Not knowing exactly what I was laughing about. It's kind of when you feel the room around you laughing, you join in. You ride the wave. Because you don't want to be left out or don't (laughs) want to look like an idiot that doesn't get it. Yeah, 100%. Now, after that clip we played you, David explained that he went to the Manhattan Grand Jury and then he told the audience that the blackmailer had been arrested for extortion that very day. Describing the strange monologue, NPR's Linda Holmes once wrote, It is a profoundly odd bit of television. The members of the audience, unprepared for what's coming, expect another goofy Dave story, and they chuckle helpfully at the jokes that he seems to insert almost compulsively. He describes his panic, and they laugh sympathetically. But as he describes calling his lawyer, they seem to realise that it actually isn't funny. He's not making jokes in the way you make jokes when your story is going to end up fine. I thought that was a really brilliant bit of analysis. Yes that you can kind of get a sense of when the story starts to flip. (laughs) Now, here's the point in the monologue where the audience realise that David's story was quite concerning. I don't think I've mentioned the amount up till now, but he was uh, asking uh, $2 million. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's important to note that the vast majority of this monologue was spent talking around the actual creepy things that David was being accused of. It wasn't until seven and a half minutes in to what was a nine-minute monologue (laughs) that the audience learned what the blackmail scheme was about in the first place. Yeah, and then they got the real clincher. David took a sip of his mug and then said this. Now, of course, we get to what was it? What was all the creepy stuff? that he was gonna put into the, the screenplay and, and the movie. And uh, the creepy stuff was that I have uh, had sex with women who work for me on this show. Now, my response to that is, yes, I have. Again, raucous laughter. laughter. How do you feel about, I think I would laugh in the moment again at that. I don't, I honestly don't know what I would do. I don't blame people for laughing, namely because I still think some of them wouldn't be entirely sure what the fuck was going on. Yeah. And it would be confusing. Yeah. I also think it's quite emblematic of the time of this. This was 2009. Having sex with women who work with him was sort of just considered in the same vein as having sex with women generally rather than what we know it to be which is a pretty gross abuse of power yeah it was like oh maybe a bit of a rat bag or bad boy but not not something concerning for us to really unpack i also think the way dave letterman structured this monologue is kind of genius that's not to excuse what he did or even weigh in on any of the actual details just from like a a writing perspective the way he framed this was very, very clever. He he talks about it in a way that you actually kind of forget he's married and this means he's also cheated on his wife. Yes. He has structured this in a way that... It's like ultimate spin doctor. It feels so spin doctory 
in a great way for his reputation, not a great way for actually getting to the nitty gritty of the story. For sure. David finished his confession by saying that he wanted to protect the women involved, his family, himself and his job on the show, also his friends and everyone who had supported him through the ordeal. He then said, I know what you're also saying. Well, I'll be darned. Dave's had sex. That's what the grand jury also said. Really? You've had sex? (laughs) Sorry. It's not quite the point. (laughs) It's not quite the point. Before the show went to an ad break, he just basically flipped into life as normal David Letterman. He informed the audience that Woody Harrelson was coming up and then it was back to business as usual. The rest of the episode went on as if nothing had happened. In a piece published in the New York Times the next day, writer Alessandra Stanley said, Mr. Letterman's on-air confession, delivered without advance warning or fanfare, would have been shocking, except that it was confusing. Mr. Letterman's delivery about his creepy backstage behaviour was so glib and deadpan that the audience couldn't be blamed for assuming that the stand-up comedian was still joking at his desk. Thursday's admission looked a lot like calculation. Mr. Letterman was answerable to an audience that doesn't answer back. Yes, and who was actually told through TV screens around the audience to laugh. Laugh, at you laugh, and laugh. <laughs> now, David Letterman at this point in the story, right, has done that confession live on television. He's told everyone that he has slept with multiple women who are working on his show. Mm. Now, he didn't say who he'd slept with or when this had happened, But at this point, it becomes quite clear that he'd been cheating on his wife, Regina, for over 20 years. So at this point, we know that he must have been cheating on his wife, unless he and his wife had some sort of arrangement. Yeah. So what do we know about the actual details of David Letterman's affairs with his employees? And how on earth did the blackmailer, Robert Heldman, know that David (laughs) Letterman was sleeping with employees outside his marriage? Let's start with the latter. In order to follow how Robert discovered David's affairs, we need to step back to 2004 and introduce another person into the story. Yes, so in 2004, a 29-year-old by the name of Stephanie Burkett was working as David Letterman's assistant, and she also made regular appearances on the show, often appearing as a young character named Vicky, kind of in skits. Stephanie had started working with David as a writing intern in 1996, so they'd been in each other's professional lives, Mish, for over a decade. After her internship with David, she kind of worked for an unspecified but brief period at the TV program 48 Hours, which is the same show that Robert Haldeman was working on at the time. In 2004, Robert Haldeman and Stephanie Burkett began dating. By 2005, they were actually living together. Yeah, so Robert loves Stephanie, Stephanie loves Robert, living together happy families. After Stephanie decided she wasn't much of a news hound, she left the 48 Hours program and yes, applied for an office job with David Letterman. She then became David's assistant and once described him to Entertainment Weekly as the best boss I'd ever had. After Stephanie graduated from law school in 2008, David offered her a job, reportedly, as a personal lawyer. At least once a week, David Letterman would drive Stephanie Burkett home from work. The pair also enjoyed hobbies together. They enjoyed long hikes on David's property. Yeah, as it turns out, and as is probably unsurprising given the context of this story, (laughs) David and Stephanie started sleeping together and did for apparently several years before Robert found out. It's pretty hard to tell exactly when the affair began, but we do know for sure that by December 2008, the pair was still romantically linked. So let's have a look at the state of these relationships by 2008. 
David Letterman is in a long-term relationship with Regina Lasco, with whom he has a five-year-old son. He's also sleeping, apparently, with Stephanie, an employee on his show. Stephanie is also in a serious relationship and living with CBS News producer Robert Haldeman. Yes. Apparently growing suspicions of how close David and Stephanie were started popping up for Robert. He had alarm bells going in his head that his girlfriend might be sleeping with her boss. He apparently read Stephanie's diary, which confirmed that an affair between David and Stephanie was taking place and going pretty strong in December 2008. It almost feels like a parody that this all boils down to an aggrieved boyfriend reading his girlfriend's diary. Well, it feels kind of high school rather than adult. Was this something people did 15 years ago, like would write this stuff in their diary? I don't know. I don't know anyone who keeps a diary these days. Well, I think people call them a journal these days. Diaries have been rebranded. Yes, so true. They are journals these days. And I would like to know, I mean, some of our listeners can let us know because I imagine there's quite a few journal writers in our community. Do you write the most personal details down? Like the I'm sleeping with X or do you write how you're feeling and what's on your mind? And if you write all the personal stuff, do you, like when I was eight years old, have a locked diary Truly. that is like voice activated or whatever. Because it's quite exposing to have all of this in written form, right? Absolutely. Robert first confronted Stephanie about the ongoing affair in December 2008, right after reading her diary, right? And apparently after the confrontation, Stephanie swore to Robert that she would end the relationship with David. Speaking to Good Morning America in August 2009, a friend of Robert's claimed that Robert caught Stephanie and David in a passionate embrace outside their home. This was the final straw for Robert. He began working on a screenplay about the toxic work environment on The Late Show and reportedly Stephanie moved out of their shared home. It appears that Stephanie did not know a thing about her now ex-boyfriend's plans to extort David Letterman. Stephanie is definitely the person we know the most about when it comes to who David Letterman was sleeping with in the workplace. We do also know, though, that David has admitted to having sex with multiple people who worked for him. So who else is there? Well, that's the same question that the whole world was asking, right, around this time. Female staffers were hounded by questions from the media, desperate to know who was having an affair with David. Speaking to New York Magazine at the time, a late show source said, we had tabloid media offering $1,500 bribes to our security guards for access to any floor in the building. We had reporters chasing staff members to their cars. Mm. It's a pretty... um, Horrendous working environment for young women at that point. Yeah. I mean, not only in the years prior is your boss trying to sleep with everybody, but then when it's exposed, you're chased by reporters to ask if it's you. Yes. What a mess is the only way I can really put it. One ex-intern named Holly came forward to TMZ about her affair with David, telling the publication that during a show hiatus in the early 90s, David called her up and asked her to go to the movies with him. According to Holly, this movie date was the beginning of a string of secret dates that no one else on the show knew about. She told TMZ, I was madly in love with David at the time. I would have married him. He was hilarious. It appears crystal clear that at least from some of the women's side, this is not just some sexual affair, not just like a movie date fling. For Holly, at least, this was love. Well, there were dates at the very least. It's not just like sneaking into hotel rooms and things like that. Like they were out and about. I would have married him. Yeah. Apparently David ended the affair with Holly after a year because the age gap between them was too big. Holly and Stephanie were the only women known to have reportedly slept with David. But judging by the tone of his confession, Mish, we can assume that they weren't the only women involved. 
We are going to talk more about what David Letterman did next, though, after the break. All right, Zara. On Monday, October 5, 2009, David Letterman arrived at work to a pile of jokes on his desk. All of those jokes made fun of or made light of his confession on the previous week's Late Show where he told the world about his affairs. According to New York Magazine, David and his staff members had trouble kind of making this Dave's in the doghouse joke work on the show and kind of blend in with other topics in the end monday glad this is the greatest challenge they have yeah they're like how do we make him seem just like a knockabout guy yeah it's a little tricky in the end monday's monologue saw david speak again for about 15 minutes tackling the affairs his role in the whole thing and then it cut straight to a commercial he never discussed the scandal on the program again During this episode of The Late Show, David clarified that all of his affairs were over and he said, I am terribly sorry I put staff in that position. I wasn't thinking ahead. He also finally acknowledged his wife, Regina, for the first time since the story broke. He said, she has been horribly hurt by my behaviour. When something happens like that, if you hurt a person and it's your responsibility, you try to fix it. And at that point, there's only two things that can happen. Either you're going to make some progress and get it fixed or you're going to fall short and perhaps not get it fixed. So let me tell you, folks, I've got my work cut out for me. Do you think there's any way that Regina saw the first monologue and was enraged that her name wasn't even mentioned? I truly believe that that's how she would have wanted it. So maybe she was watching it saying, do not involve me in this. This is your shit to deal with. You'll obviously deal with me privately. But maybe this is David responding to public backlash that he hadn't said his wife's name. I don't know. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised if Regina was like, I don't want to be part of this narrative initially. Mm. Like this is your shit to bear. And then later we can talk about me and talk about what it means for our marriage. Mm. But first things first there were a few layers to the story that he needed oh, to tell oh yes like i do i do understand that but i i just kind of feel like this apology to regina was a whole host of nothing though when something happens you try to fix it and then there's <laughs> when only... something happens it's like i had no control over also, this thing <laughs> then there's two outcomes either you fix it or you don't fix it i'm like what what are we talking about yeah I don't mind it all that much. He does say, let me tell you folks, I've got my work cut out for me. Like, it's not like he's saying she needs to do anything. He's saying, I'm either going to fix this and I'm going to try and it's going to be an uphill battle or it's not going to happen. I don't have too many negative feelings. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) fair enough. Negative feelings about David, not that particular passage. (laughs) It's interesting because, I mean, the natural question at this point in the story is how did the world react when one of the most famous men on television admitted to having multiple affairs live on air? And not just multiple affairs, but multiple affairs with his staff members. Well, the answer to this question is summed up pretty perfectly by Drew Schwartz for Vice. Looking back on the scandal years later, a decade later, he wrote, the response to Letterman's confession was essentially a big collective shrug. Yeah, that's not to say that people weren't talking about it. They definitely were. The thing is... The mainstream media didn't seem to be all that bothered by David's actions. Speaking on the talk show The View on October 5, Barbara Walters even said, I have to just say up front that I'm a big fan of David Letterman on the air and I also like him very much personally. He's a man who's difficult to know because he is essentially a very shy man and a very private man. This kind of thing would be difficult for anyone, but more difficult, I would think, for him. And where do you meet people? 
in the workplace. <laughs> Barbara. <laughs> Sorry. He has a wife. Uh, look, Barbara had a wonderful, illustrious career, but <laughs> it's not her best day. It's not. Where do you meet people in the workplace? Like, she's not technically wrong, but there is a lot that she's omitting. She is missing, like, 95% of the picture. Writing for the New York Times the day after that, on October 6, Maureen Dowd also expressed her support for David, writing, In an ideal world, bosses would refrain from sleeping with their subordinates so as not to cause jealousy and tension in the office. But we're not in an ideal world. From what we know so far, and that may not be everything, the women who got involved with Letterman were not pressured. I get it partly. It's not my take. Like, I can see what she's trying to do here, Maureen. But yeah. I think there is room to discuss, well, let's not strip the women involved of all their agency. Maybe they genuinely did want to sleep with David. Maybe they just genuinely found him attractive. But we can't ignore the fact that David was their boss. Their paycheck was being paid every fortnight or every month because it was David's show. Like, it's very hard to strip all of that back and know what these dynamics would be like without that power at play. Also, it's one thing to say that they might have wanted to sleep with him in the moment. Like, that's also probably true. Is like, yes, they probably didn't feel pressured in the moment. Mm. It probably took them years to maybe look back and realise how it might have fucked their careers or really, like, hurt them in other ways. Like, it's a far more layered thing than that. I think as well this one's tricky to analyse sometimes because it's not as if the women came out and said, hey, we want to talk about yes, this. This I know. was all exposed by a man. So it's like, would the women have had a problem with it? Would they have felt like they were taken advantage of or that the power dynamic was off? Maybe they wouldn't have, and I don't want to put words in their mouths. All we know is that it was exposed by a man who was shit <laughs> i know, wasn't actually trying to do the right thing no Over. also it would be interesting i think to see if this didn't come out in 2009 if it did come out in 2017 yes. when a lot of the other stuff came out a thousand percent now in this maureen dowd piece let's go back to it for a second maureen actually commented on the public comparisons between david's confession and bill clinton's sex scandal she said it is absurd to compare a jester, unmarried at the time, to Bill Clinton and other philandering polls. The main thing Letterman and Clinton had in common was the danger of a secret affair exploding is enhanced when the staffer is immature enough to scrawl confessions in her diary, as Stephanie did, or go prattling to a prat like Linda Tripp. Oh, my God. So it did get incredibly slut-shamey, women-blamey. And also, when the staff member is immature enough to write the confessions in her diary, Stephanie's allowed to journal. Yeah, I know. I think it, it says a lot about, I mean, I would say the time, but I'm not into, I don't know where we'd be now in 2022 with an older generation of women mm. who likely put up with a lot of shit to get to where they got to in their career and now look back and say, well, look at all these immature women fluttering around who can't handle it. Yeah, a thousand percent. It's not that surprising to see other women slut shaming the women involved in the scandal rather than condemning David Letterman's behaviour. This was about 10 years before the Me Too era. And so it's confronting and upsetting to read these words from Maureen or even from Barbara Walters, but that was the vibe of the well, time. This was, this was everywhere. Yes, yeah. and it's not that long ago. This is the New York Times. It's yeah. not like we're reading from The Sun. And it's not to say that people also weren't a little bit more critical as well or at least somewhat sceptical of the way that David crafted his self-deprecating mm. confession. Writing for The Guardian, Maura Kelly commented, the most surprising thing about David Letterman's admission is that by 10 a.m. this morning, only one of my 600 Facebook friends had mentioned it. A famous, powerful entertainer had a few sexual 
affairs, the people in my world seem unfazed. In that same piece, Maura Kelly continued, was Letterman's decision to confess brave? I wouldn't go that far. It was a PR move. But as PR moves go, it was incredibly smooth. He presented his story on his own terms to an audience that was naturally inclined to be on his side. A room full of people who had willingly showed up for the taping of his show. Letterman isn't the villain in his story. His blackmailer is. Which is a clever way for Letterman, as you said at the start, to kind of frame his monologue, which is you actually spend more time thinking about how bad the blackmailer is Mm. rather than how bad Letterman is, which is the entire point. Later in October 2009, a feminist writer by the name of Melissa McEwen condemned David's actions, writing, My issue with Letterman's behaviour is that one of the richest, most powerful men in television making a habit of sleeping with female subordinates is not only a major ethical breach, but also raises what ought to be obvious questions about coercion. If there is an expectation, even an implicit or oblique expectation, that sleeping with the boss may be part of your job, whether there can be genuine and undiluted enthusiastic consent is a serious question. Melissa McEwen was not the only person calling out David's actions. Soon, one female ex-Late Show staffer would tell their story and accuse David Letterman of creating a, and I quote, hostile work environment that was demeaning to women. So let's talk about that female ex-Late Show staffer, Mish, because on October 27, 2009, so just a few weeks after the entire world hears of what was happening with David Letterman, Vanity Fair published the now famous essay, Letterman and Me, written by one of David Letterman's few former female show writers, a woman named Nell Skvell. In this essay, Nell described the desperate shortage of women in writers' rooms at all American late night shows. Her essay opened with this. At this moment, there are more females serving on the United States Supreme Court than there are writing for Late Show with David Letterman, The Jay Leno Show, The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. Out of the 50 or so comedy writers working on these programs, exactly zero are women. It's an insane stat. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> well, women aren't that funny. Women <laughs> are not funny. Women are Bad. boring and stupid. It is a, it's a nut stat. The women are too busy writing in their journals. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> in her essay, Nell acknowledged the many media stars who had defended David after his confession. She even directly tackled Barbara Walters' comments on The View. She also spoke about sexual favoritism, where one employee might receive some kind of benefit because of a consensual sexual relationship with their superior. And she highlighted that that's actually a form of sexual harassment in the workplace. Speaking from her own personal experience as a writer on that show, Nell wrote, Did Dave hit on me? No. Did he pay me enough extra attention that it was noted by other writers? Yes. Was I aware of rumours that Dave was having sexual relationships with female staffers? Yes. Was I aware that other high-level male employees were having sexual relationships with female staffers? Yes. She went on and said, Did these female staffers have access to information and wield power disproportionate to their job titles? Yes. Did that create a hostile work environment? Yes. Did I believe these female staffers were benefiting professionally from their personal relationships? Yes. Did that make me feel demeaned completely? Did I say anything at the time? Sadly, no. Nell went on to reveal that she walked away from the late show, even though it was her dream job, because of the toxic working environment. On deciding to speak up years later, she explained that she felt entitled to do so because David opened up the issue for public discussion by talking about it in his monologue. 
Importantly, Nell also wrote that she wanted to, and I quote, pivot the discussion away from the bedroom and towards the writer's room because it pains me that almost 20 years on, the situation for female writers in late night TV has not improved. Towards the end of that essay, Nell provided her illuminating description of the typical male writing room in 2009. She wrote, male writers don't want to be judged in that room. They want to be able to scarf an entire bag of potato chips while cracking fart jokes and making lewd comments without fear of feminine disapproval. But we're your co-workers, not your wives. Crack a decent fart joke and as professionals, we will laugh. It is a clunky last sentence, I'm not going to lie, where your co-workers, not your wives, mm. as if you're ma- if you're married to one of these guys. Mitch can never actually crack a joke. You deserve to be treated that way. But that aside, I see the point she's making. Yeah, I think I think she's probably leaning into the cool girl trope of, of like, yes, I'm the I'm cool- not the boring wife. I can take I can take the men's jokes. Yeah. So, but at least treat me well. And you know what? I'm going to give Nell a green light. I'm just like, let's just yeah. Because <laughs> I'm Team Nell. Most, well, most of the piece is quite strong. Yeah. At the time, Nell's essay Letterman and Me didn't gain as much attention as you might. According to Vice, the only outlet to actually echo Nell's claims of sexual favoritism on The Late Show was the National Organization for Women, known commonly as NOW. In a statement posted to their website, NOW wrote, As the boss, David Letterman is responsible for setting the tone in his entire workplace. And he did that with sex. In any work environment, this places all employees, including employees who happen to be women, in an awkward, confusing and demoralizing situation. It's a fair question to ask at this point as well, like why Nell wasn't taken more seriously. I think in many ways, though, you kind of hear about any story of a young woman speaking up about a toxic work environment or a toxic relationship with a man pre-2017 and nothing ever happened. That's why 2017 Mm. and the Me Too era was so huge, right? Yeah, 100%. Because suddenly it was like, oh, no, we can listen to these stories. Looking back on the scandal for Vice, Drew Schwartz did ask those questions. He wrote, how did so many commentators fail to see the problem with a powerful boss sleeping with his subordinates who, according to another employee, then enjoyed professional privileges? So I think that is in many ways emblematic of the time, but I think there was also something else that popped up, wasn't there? Yeah, well, maybe Letterman felt a little relieved because it wasn't too long later. In fact, it was only on November 27, 2009, that the Tiger Woods cheating scandal broke and completely washed away basically all of the commentary and conversation about David Letterman's affairs. As you guys might remember, this was one of the biggest cheating stories ever. Tiger Woods, the golf star drove his SUV into a tree and a fire hydrant outside his home in Florida. His wife Elin was in the headlines as well. It would later mark the beginning of the Tiger Woods cheating scandal that was maybe one of the biggest headlines of the year. I think it's probably the biggest cheating scandal of all time. Mm. And I think when it came to this story, the David Letterman one, I was like, why did I not know about this? This is 2009. Like I wasn't a child I was still reading the news how come I don't remember any of this like it didn't happen that long ago and then when that fact came up that Tiger Woods and his cheating story was just a month or so after David Letterman's it all made sense because it actually washed away all news at that time it's also worth noting that David Letterman did not even read Letterman and Me that Vanity Fair 
piece from Nell until 2019 when he was 72 years old. 10 years after it was released. Yeah, and this fact only came to light when Nell actually interviewed David in person to mark the 10th anniversary of her essay. (laughs) Yeah. On October 30, 2019, Vanity Fair published Nell's Letterman and Me Revisiting, I guess. It was titled 10 Years Ago, I Called Out David Letterman. This month, we sat down to talk. According to the article, Nell and David had a two-hour conversation in an empty conference room in New York, and David told Nell this, I'm sorry I was that way, and I was happy to have read the piece because it wasn't angering. I felt horrible because who wants to be the guy that makes people unhappy to work where they're working? Okay, but like, why didn't you read it at the time? Why if did you it, care? Why did it take you 10, yeah. 10 years? Is a You have time in 10 years. Oh my God. It is interesting to read Nell's own reflections on 2009 and the experiences that led to her writing that essay. In the updated piece, she wrote, I worried that calling out some of TV's highest paid entertainers might end my career. But since then, the number of female writers and writers of colour in late night has improved in part because you can't go lower than zero. The conversation between David and Nell does appear to be pretty genuine. Like, as they spoke, Nell recounted a time where she was sexually coerced by a head writer she was working under, and she wrote expressively that she felt grateful to hear David listening to her on the recording, and he expressed his sadness as she told the story. Mm, Judging by this 10-year update, David Letterman does appear to have spent some time, at least, reflecting on his past actions. Nell commented on the sweet but oblivious commiserations he shared throughout their conversation. It also feels kind of important to note that following the interview, David made two calls to former female staffers that Nell had mentioned by name and apologised to those women for failing to see their potential when they were working together. And he apologised to those women directly for not fostering a safe enough working environment. It's an interesting piece because I think you always want progress and you always want people to turn around and say, oh, okay, I'm listening to you and I can hear you and I will move forward and be different. But I still can't shake the feeling that I don't know if it should take 10 years. Yeah. I appreciate it can take time to leave your ego at the door and read a story that someone's written about you and that that can take a bit of time and maturity. But 10 years, it makes me wonder how genuine it is. It does raise some questions to me. But that said, I don't want to be the person that says it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Because any progress is good. I genuinely want to ask this to you and maybe it's a ridiculous thought. Is there any way David Letterman didn't actually know about the essay? Given everything that might have been happening in his life at that time, first of all, he might have completely switched off from the news as like an avoidant strategy which I can't say I would personally be above like maybe I would avoid the news like the plague for a really long time we also said in 2009 that essay didn't get much traction is there a world where David Letterman was avoiding the news this was pre-twitter being a massive news source this was pre-social media blowing up essays like this could he have missed it and then she reached out 10 years later and he genuinely either forgot about it or didn't know about it and goes First of all, yes, I'll talk to you. I need to read the piece first because I'm ready to wrangle with these things. Potentially, but I wouldn't say David Letterman didn't see the piece because of anxiety. I think it would have been arrogance. I would imagine that there would have been a world where someone would have said, oh, and there's a Vanity Fair piece coming out from an ex-employee and he just didn't care. I think it can be either. I get what you're saying. There's an entitlement to not needing to care. And I think Mm. given the role that he played and the power that he had, 
And what seemed to be his personality at the time, I just wouldn't be surprised if he just shrugged his shoulders and goes, okay, who cares? Yeah. It's also interesting, I think, because despite all the wrangling that they appear to have or David appears to have in this interview with Nell, Nell also pointed out to him that in his Netflix show, My Guest Needs No Introduction, his entire group of executive producers for season one were all men. (laughs) So it's like, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, yeah, like, let's make these changes, but you've clearly spent no time thinking about it yourself. Yeah, maybe the only point he started actually thinking about it was after this chat with Nell because he did leave the chat and hire a more diverse group of executive producers for season two. So maybe it just occurred to him in 2019 that women are a thing. (laughs) Women are people. (laughs) Truly. And I can work with them without having sex with them. (laughs) Yeah, you actually might be wondering now at this point, well, what the hell happened to Robert Holderman, yeah, the man who tried to blackmail David Letterman over his workplace affairs? Well, Robert Holderman was indicted by a grand jury on October 1, 2009 and pleaded not guilty to the $2 million extortion charge. His lawyer even called the extortion charge preposterous during an appearance on Good Morning America. On that GMA appearance, his lawyer made note of Robert's respected reputation as a CBS news producer and promised audience that there is, and I quote, much more to the story. Only it turns out that perhaps there wasn't that much more to the story, actually, because on March 10, 2010, Robert Holderman ended up pleading guilty to the charges. He was sentenced to six months in jail, five years of probation and a thousand hours of community service. So that's where Robert ended up. What about Stephanie, Robert's ex-girlfriend who was also sleeping with David Letterman? Well, it appears that Stephanie ended up fully committing to a career in the law and she still holds a valid license in Connecticut. Seems like she really just moved away completely from the media and from the public eye. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's David Letterman. It is pretty safe to say that the scandal did not ruin David Letterman's career. In total, David has hosted over 6,000 episodes of television. He was the host of The Late Show until 2015 when his successor, Stephen Colbert, took the helm. His wife, Regina, and his then 12-year-old son, Harry, were also both in the audience for his final final late show taping david and regina are still married to this day yeah the fourth season of david's netflix series my next guest needs no introduction went live in may 2022 it featured interviews with billy eilish cardi b will smith and more as of recording david letterman's estimated net worth is around the 425 million dollar mark I think he's fine. I think I think what he's a, fine. His marriage survived. He's and when I say sitting th- on a little castle of cash. And when I say I think he's fine, I mean I think he su- survived it. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure he's a fine person. But would you go to coffee if David Linneman reached out and said, "Zara, let's get coffee." Of course I would. I would say, why didn't you read the piece? <laughs> That's what I would say. You wouldn't even say hi. You'd sit down and be like, the piece. <laughs> what was it? What were you doing for 10 years? Oh, gosh. A big thank you to our researcher, Eilish Gilligan, who put this one together. What a story, Michelle. What a story. Dare I say one of my favourite stories we've covered on Scandal. Not because I love what happened, but because I love the way it all unfolded and I love kind of dissecting how the hell a celebrity gets themselves in this position. Yeah, 1000%. It's been pretty fascinating. That is for sure. Guys, you, you know what the drill is. We will be back in your ears on Thursday for another wrap in the week that was in pop culture. All right, bye.
Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.